0: Shalom Aleichem, welcome to The Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ellen Cassidy to speak about her new book, Working 9 to 5, A Woman's Movement, A Labor Union, and The Iconic Movie, just published by Chicago Press, with a foreword by Jane Fonda. Ellen was a founder of the 9 to 5 movement in the early 1970s. She's also a Yiddish translator and an alum of the Yiddish Book Center's Translation Fellowship Program. Welcome, Ellen.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Great to have a chance to reconnect uh, around your latest work. I've been eager for you um, to join me for this conversation. Listeners might know you from past interviews about your work translating and publishing the works of women writers such as Bluma Lempel and Yenta Mash. I'm eager to speak with you today about the intersection of that work and your newly published book, chronicling the nine-to-five movement, um, and hoping that you can provide a little bit of background about what your foundational work. I think it's safe to say in in really um, the groundwork for the nine-to-five movement, and maybe mention how you, um, you know, how the iconic name, if I may, um, came to
1: be. Yeah, it all fits together. Um, In 1973, I was 23 years old, and I was one of 10 women in Boston, women office workers sitting around in a circle talking about our jobs. I was a clerk typist at Harvard University. And when we got started, sexual harassment was legal. Pregnancy discrimination was legal. Help wanted ads in the newspapers were help wanted male and help wanted female. Office work paid less than factory work. We were training men to be our own supervisors, and uh, we were referred to as girls. One woman put it, they call us girls until the day we retire without pension. And we were asked to do favors, all kinds of favors for our bosses. So when I got the idea to write this book, um, what I wanted to do was to really tell the history of how this, this movement began to bubble up in this underrecognized workforce, and to create sort of an intimate perch from which to explore a wider world. So I wanted to tell my, my own personal history, my own story, as well as the story of the 9to5 organization, and the working women's movement as a whole, and how we 9 to fivers forged our own link in a chain of struggle for economic and social justice.
0: So when I reached out to you about this, um, I, mentioned that you know usually we talk about Yiddish um and Yiddish culture and aspects of Jewish culture Etc and I'd love to sort of find that um that thread which I think is there I mean Yiddish and social justice was a th- you know theme of our 2021 decade of discovery this year the theme is women in Yiddish and I believe that there's sort of a conversation about how Both of these themes, if I may, have deep roots in Yiddish and wondered if you could speak about that in connection with your work um, around Yiddish speaking women activists of 100 years ago and how they inspired or you know, just sort of how that connects. And I
1: think that there is a connection. I've always connected them. When I was growing up, my grandfather, who was an immigrant from Lithuania, uh, this is my Jewish grandfather on my mother's side, would tell me stories about how when he first arrived in New York at the turn of the century, he stood in a square in New York City, listening to the garment workers, the women standing on soapboxes and orating. Um, And we nine to five women really saw ourselves as the heirs of those women. Um, in 1909, there was something called the Uprising of the 20,000, and it was a massive strike of garment women. My grandfather heard Rose Schneiderman speaking in Union Square, and she was, uh, she was a young woman. She was four foot nine, which was even shorter than my grandfather. She had flaming red hair, and she was credited with coining the phrase bread and roses, which meant that women workers need not only a living wage, but also to have the opportunity to live a satisfying life. Um, Clara Limlech was another leader that many people have still heard of, of that strike. Um, she had immigrated to the United States from Ukraine in 1903 after the pogrom in Kishinev. And in 1909, when they were all deciding whether to go on strike, they had a massive meeting in a huge hall on the Lower East Side of New York. And she was hoisted up onto the stage and she delivered a ringing call for the strike in Yiddish. And there was a big roar of applause and the strike began and she went down history. So these strikers, most of them were young women. They were Yiddish speaking women, many of them. They were also Italians and other immigrants. Uh, Many of them were teenagers, and it was the biggest strike by women ever, and this uprising not only improved their own wages and hours, but also transformed the labor movement of their time. And so then fast forward to the early 1970s, office workers were really like the garment workers of their time. Uh, It was a huge and growing and unrecognized sector of the workforce, and just like the garment workers, we were unpaid unseen, underpaid and unseen, and where their slogan was bread and roses, we made our slogan raises and roses.
0: It's, it's great. And I I enjoyed reading the account of your grandfather um, and that connection. Again, You know, it's just so deeply rooted in um, a Jewish experience, I think, the idea of social justice. And I'm going to talk a little bit about your other work as well. Um, I was introduced to you via the volume um, Oedipus in Brooklyn, Blumel Lampel's stories and translation, which you did so brilliantly with Yermiyahoo, Aaron Taub. Um, and I have to say I was immediately struck when I opened the book and started reading the stories and realized, wait a minute, she's writing about the moon landing. She's writing about <laughs> abortions. And my um, you know, sort of naive take or um or <laughs> was at that point, um, wow, somebody was, a woman was writing in Yiddish and these are events that took place, you know, in the 70s and 80s um, and forward. And also, um, again, when I came to your um, translation of Yentamash's stories, um, I, I was struck by the fact that she was writing into the early 2000s. Tell me a little bit about, and I think it's primarily in Bluma's in stories, how, again, she figures into this, and I'm interested in the work that you did early on in your career in making 9 to 5 come about, and then how this threads into your work in translation.
1: I think I've always had an interest in the the underheard, and in women who, uh, you know, every one of these women who writes, like Bluma, Lempel, Yentamash, represents So many other women who didn't write, who weren't able to get their thoughts down on paper, didn't have the time or the inclination or whatever. And so they're all representative. Um, They're, of course, very amazing individuals in themselves, but they also give us a window into the lives of other people like them. And that I think is one of the most important things about all the uh, work that's being done translating women Yiddish writers today, you know, today we're unearthing, like uh, exhuming these, these wonderful works. There was a little bit of that feeling with women office workers as well. Uh, in the early 1970s, when pe- people pictured a worker, they would picture a man with a hard hat wielding a wrench. but uh, And they didn't think of, of office workers. And office workers didn't really think of ourselves as a, a united group of workers either and uh, however at the beginning of the 1970s women were flooding into the workforce women of color had always needed to work but uh, in the early 70s white women who had not needed to work who had dependent on their husband's income suddenly needed a job because you couldn't get by on one job anymore so uh, there's it was like the the coming together of two rivers as one historian has called it the economic and the cultural where because of the civil rights movement and the women's movement people needed a job and wanted a job but they wanted a good job so that these dreams began to bubble up and it was the perfect conditions for people recognizing each other as oh we are united as workers and as women i was
0: very um sort of excitedly counting what I read in the book over dinner last night. And one of the things I'd love for you to speak a little bit about is, um, you know, it took a lot of guts and resolve to do what you did and the women who worked with you early on. I mean, you built something from nothing. And then what was really interesting to me also is, um, I mean, I, I, I came to Boston not long after you And I realized I have you to thank um, because I had an incident in in my job um, and I had the strength and the backing to say to the person, sorry, no, um, not going to happen. So, uh, you know, from where did you draw this reservoir? And also, why did you know that you just needed
1: to do this? So I had tried to bring across in the book is that some people I think are born activists and I wasn't, Um, I had the background of my grandfather and my parents involved me in the civil rights movement, and I'd been in some consciousness raising groups in college, but really, um, I could have gone in any number of directions, and it was uh, meeting the right people sitting around with the right people, and also getting trained at the Midwest Academy, which was a school for organizers just getting going in 1973 that led me to believe, you know, if I put my shoulder to this wheel, something will happen. And it was so exciting. We were, you know, we were young and green. We didn't know what we were doing. but in some ways, that was what that was the secret to our success, because we didn't know what wouldn't work. And we went around Boston and we we asked for advice from different people, union people, civil rights leaders, and so on. And a lot of people said, forget it. This is never going to work. We tried that already. It didn't work. But then there were people who seemed as if they were just waiting for us to come along and they gave us their blessing and their advice. Sometimes their advice was good. Sometimes we had to disregard it. And we had a lot of misconceptions about what women would be ready to do. For example, we thought leaving a stack of leaflets in the ladies' room in a giant office tower, well, that's easy. Anyone can do that. Well, no, people were afraid to do that. So what would they do? And so we had to really... um, think hard and listen hard to what women were ready to do. And and we sort of felt our way along. We followed our noses. And pretty soon we were, for example, running the bad boss contest in Boston, where women were encouraged to anonymously send in uh, the most outrageous thing they'd ever been asked to do on the job. And then we would show up at that boss and with a posse of women on their lunch hour with tv cameras rolling and it was very embarrassing for the boss sometimes the boss backed down and said okay i'm going to change that policy sometimes not there was uh, the boss who had fired his secretary for bringing him a corned beef on white instead of rye and he was he just stuck to his guns you know no nope, that was An infraction that cannot be forgiven, that woman is losing her job. But um, we did make progress and it was so exciting to see change start to happen. For example, um, we heard about a few women in a small insurance company and one day they wrote up a petition and they had, you know, higher pay and many other demands on on the petition and they started circulating it around the office. And after three days, their boss caught them at it. And he took the petition. He held it up in the air and got everybody's attention. And he said, you know what we do with these things? They go right in the trash and dropped right into the trash can plunk. And three days later, the women had all their demands met. So we ended up taking on the biggest and the baddest, the biggest banks, the biggest insurance companies. And we won millions of dollars in back pay and raises. We had bosses on the run. Uh, one boss we learned had slept overnight in his office the day we declared his insurance company to be our target. I don't know what he thought he was going to accomplish by doing that, but they were scared and and they made change.
0: Again, that's what was so astounding to me was, and forgive me, Ellen, um, and the importance of this book comes out here. I did not realize all of this incubated with you in Boston. And then as the book, you know uh, moves forward through this movement you realize that you were able to sort of create this foundation this architecture then that be, could become part of a national movement that many of us think of it as you know not incubating with the the few of you and it's just remarkable how you, you took something on and then you moved to the next and you took something on in the midst of all of that, was it heady? Were you surprised? Um, you were just running full tilt.
1: Yeah, it was It was a very exciting time. And I hope that I get that across in the book, just how full of joy it was, just exciting and interesting. And uh, these things would come at us and we didn't know, well, what are we going to do now? And then we'd sit down, we'd talk it through and we'd come up with something and try Um, And that's what I'm hoping people will get out of the book, is that that's what everybody needs to do. You know, in the organizing that's happening today, very exciting union organizing in retail and restaurants and warehouses and among grad students, um, really... Uh, it's a question of of thinking outside the box. Um, Sometimes some of these efforts are happening through the National Labor Relations Board, which is the traditional workplace by workplace method. But then there are also all these creative, interesting things people are doing that draw on community support, as we did, and surprise and humor. Um, and it, it's it's a dynamic, interesting thing that's going on. Um, I'd like to talk a little about the 9 to 5 movie um, (laughs) as an example of a way that it, you know, it's not just change happens sometimes on a big scale and sometimes a small scale. Well, this was a big scale. Um, We had expanded nationwide in part because we wanted to make sure to build a multiracial organization. Boston was a largely white city at that time. It's still largely white, but um, we and so we targeted cities that had a diverse population with a lot of women of color in the clerical workforce like Baltimore and Cleveland and uh, Milwaukee and Atlanta. Um, And we succeeded in expanding nationwide and in building a multiracial organization, which I'm very proud of. Um, At one point in the late 70s, Jane Fonda came to us. She knew one of our members, Karen Nussbaum, from the anti-Vietnam War movement, and she'd been following what we were doing. And she said she wanted to make a film about women office workers' concerns, and we were pretty thrilled. So she sent a team to meet with our members, and they popped a question that we had never thought to ask in all the recruitment lunches we had had with prospective members. And the question was, have you ever fantasized about doing in your boss? So there was a moment of stunned silence, and then the room just exploded because it turned out everybody had One woman talked about fantasizing about grinding her boss up in a coffee grinder. Another woman talked about wanting to swivel her boss around in his swivel chair and swivel him right out the window. And these fantasies went right into the script. And the movie was a huge hit. Uh, the, The atmosphere in the theaters was just electric. There's one scene where Jane Fonda is new on the job and she's ushered into a room where there's a huge photocopy machine and, you know, left there alone to deal with it. So she pushes the button and these papers start flying out of various orifices of the the machine and she's trying to catch them and they're scattering all over the floor and she's getting more and more upset and her lip starts to tremble. And at that point, people would stand up, women would stand up in the theater and say, push the stop button. So the movie and Dolly Parton's toe tapping Anthem, Uh, Gave us a huge boost. Um, I remember one time uh, sitting on the bus. I heard this woman saying to her seatmate, she said, so he asked me to make the coffee. And I said to him, I just saw nine to five and I am never going to make a cup of coffee for you again. So the the movement inspired the movie and then the movie really propelled our movement forward.
0: That's such fun to, to read about again. I was like trying to explain how that how that all worked. Um, and can you talk a little bit
1: about the name Nine to Five? The name Nine to Five. We the organization after the hours of the working day. Uh, it just it took an evening of brainstorming to come up with that. And one thing about it was it was neutral. It didn't say you know the the uh, revolutionary alliance of women who won't take it anymore or anything like that. It was just kind of inviting, welcoming, anybody could relate to it. Now today, uh, we probably wouldn't name the organization nine to five because in today's gig economy, people don't work nine to five necessarily. They might be patching together two or three jobs to put food on the table. And uh, that's one of the challenges that today's workers are facing and I think today it's it can be even harder to be a working person than it was back then 50 years ago. People lack paid vacation, regular schedules, pensions, and there's computerized monitoring. You know, second by second surveillance that keeps the pace of work completely relentless. The pandemic has taken a huge uh, uh, chunk out of women's earnings. But as I said, the great thing is the surge of labor organizing that we're seeing today. And I don't know if you saw the recent poll that showed that support for unions is at a higher level today than it's been in two generations. 71% of people say they're favorably disposed toward unions. So, so I have hope.
0: Um, and and you've, you've allowed for hope, which is a really good thing, Ellen. Going back sort of also to the work that you do Um, with your translation of women's work I was I, I really appreciated that you put in those anecdotal stories from so many women about their experience and wondered how hard it was for them to tell those stories because you want to have the ability to share them but there was also you know in in real time that wasn't necessarily the easiest thing i wonder if you talk a little bit about that and again the importance of that in the book which i think it is really important in terms of conveying to another generation what it is that this movement has allowed for and why we need to keep coming back to it both in your translation of other women's work that you know reflects on those um, challenges in their time
1: Yeah, so um, in the early 90s, when Anita Hill gave her testimony to the Senate committee that was uh, considering the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, sexual harassment really exploded as an issue. And as we know, sexual harassment had been going on since time immemorial, uh, but the the words weren't even coined until the mid-70s. And then in the early 90s, we set up a, a hotline for people to report to us on problems they were having on the job. And we got thousands of calls after that Anita Hill's testimony. And one woman said that she, you know, wanted to report that she had been sexually harassed by her boss. And so the the operator we had there said, well, when did this take place? And she whispered, she said, 1954. So, it's really hard for people to come out with these stories. I have a story of of sexual harassment that took place on the job of myself in the book. And I had never told anybody. And uh, even now, uh, you know, I'm running this as part of the, the book promotion, running this thing called a dignity at work contest, where I'm encouraging people to send in examples of things that they uh, were asked to do on the job. And then I award a free copy of the book to the the best ones. Um, and I, you know, I was announcing this recently over the weekend at a book book event. I couldn't tell my story. You know, it just seemed too embarrassing and too somehow I felt that it reflected on me. And that's what these, the, you know, this organization helped to do was to bring these things out of the shadows and take the shame away. And I also want to say that Bluma Lempel uh, herself, her stories, they go into these taboo areas that women have not been talking about. And she puts it down on paper. And I think the courage to do that is so important. And that's part of what we get out of reading this Yiddish literature. And it's so unexpected. You think, what? Wait a minute, Yiddish? That's some fusty old thing that from years ago, of course, people wouldn't talk about things like that. But they did. We just had a program last night on House of Memory. It was
0: uh, five women writers. And it's it's fascinating what happens when you begin to write down experience. And some mm-hmm. very raw, real, and important issues come out. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, uh, and again, your book is a you know such a an interesting read historically, really beautifully crafted. Thank you um, for that. And I I do want to ask you also, how did you go from there to what you're doing now?
1: As I say, it's all connected. So uh, after I worked at nine to five for twelve years into the middle of the 1980s, I went on to um, work in the labor movement, and then eventually. I found my way after my mother died, I, going to Lithuania and uh, exploring my family past and then exploring how Lithuania itself was uh, moving forward from the Holocaust. How were they dealing with their Jewish past? And I wrote a book called We Are Here that blends both my family journey and the journey of this nation uh, together. And during that time, I was studying Yiddish as a memorial to my mother. and. Uh, again, I, I really feel that it's part of the same thing, bringing these unheard voices out and uh, using those voices as inspiration for, uh, for action, for collective action. Um, I, would you mind if I read a tiny little paragraph? <gasps> I would love book, that. I would absolutely welcome that. Tie it all together. Thank you. Okay. Our hopes and dreams were huge. We didn't win at all. In this line of work, you're always reaching for the horizon and beyond you're never satisfied. You never achieve everything you try for. Your victories along the way only whet your appetite for more. So there's much more to do. Isn't that the way it always goes? There's an old labor song that says, freedom, freedom is a hard won thing. You've got to work for it, fight for it, day and night for it. And every generation's got to win it again.
0: Thank you, Ellen. For that, for the book, for all of your work, which is, um, you know, inspiring and also propels us forward in a lot of ways that we might not otherwise have, um, you know, followed the, that direction. For our listeners, the book is "Working Nine to Five: A Woman's Movement, A Labor Union, and the Iconic Movie" by Ellen Cassidy. Ellen, always a pleasure to have you on. Keep up the work. We can't wait to to hear what's next, and personally and from so many of my friends, thank you and your colleagues for everything that you did to help us push forward. Um, It doesn't go unappreciated. Um,
1: So thanks for having me today. (laughs) Okay, it's really been a pleasure.
0: You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts.
1: To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be
0: well and be healthy.